0: Today we, we start our examination of a seafaring adventure. I don't know if you picked that up in all the songs we sang or <laughs> scriptures we read. Now we pick it up for Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 27, if you would like to turn there. And whenever I began studying this passage, I couldn't help but think about a few stories of uh, catastrophes, choppy weather, and what have you. Perhaps the most I thought of is The Perfect Storm, if you've ever read that or watched that. It's a long movie, and the book is better. <laughs> but uh it's about New England fishermen caught in a collision of three storm fronts off the coast of New England. They were headed up towards the, the Grand Banks, a bit off the coast of Newfoundland. Sadly, the crew of a fishing vessel called the Andrea Gale were lost at sea, presumably overturned and sunk in the storm. Thankfully, we know Paul and his company make it, but we're not going to cover that until next week. Because whenever I set out to write this, I came up with really six movements in this whole chapter. And so for the sake of mercy, I decided to preach that in, in two messages. Uh, the first message will take still 26 verses so i do invite you to stand in honor of hearing the word of the lord this morning if you're able to stand acts 27 verses 1 through 26 we read when it was decided that we were to sail for italy they transferred paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the augustan cohort named julius embarking on a ship of Adram- adramidium that was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends to be cared for. Putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were against us. After we had sailed across the sea, that is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia, there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship bound for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the winds were against us, we sailed under the shelter of Crete, af Salmone. Sailing past it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhavens near the city of Lycia. Since much of the time had been lost and sailing was now dangerous because even the fast had already gone by, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I can see that the voyage will be with danger and much heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Since the harbor was not suitable for spending the winter, the majority was in favor of putting to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, where they could spend the winter. It was a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest. When a moderate south wind began to blow, they thought they could achieve their purpose, so they weighed anchor and began to sail past Crete close to the shore. But soon a violent wind called the Northeaster rushed down from Crete. Since the ship was caught and could not be turned head on into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven. By running under the shelter of a small island called Kauda, We were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After hoisting it up, they took measures to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run on the Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and so were driven. We were being pounded by the storm so violently that on the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. And on the third day, with their own hands, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest raged, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete, and thereby avoided this damage and loss. I urge you now to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For last night there stood by me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before the emperor. And indeed, God has granted safety to all those who are sailing with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we will have to run aground on some island. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's weighty, it's trustworthy, it's been written down for us. We ask Holy Spirit that since you wrote these words you would be the one teaching and not I, that you would say what it is that you desire. We ask Holy Spirit that you would open up our hearts and ears and minds to hear you and hear you well, and not only to hear you but to respond well, to act accordingly and obediently. Thank you that you come to us in love through Jesus Christ. And thank you that you command us first and foremost, to love you and to love others. That you're not demanding us to act obediently out of obligation or hardness or coldness, but out of love. And so we pray that's the attitude that we would have. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. As Paul left the coast of the Holy Land, we kind of left a long episode behind. Paul had been before kings and rulers giving testimony for quite some time as he was the center of a riot back in Jerusalem. And I'll let you read Acts 21-26 through 26 on your own time if you've missed it. Suffice it to say, when no ruling was happening from the governors that he was giving testimony to, he, as a Roman citizen, appealed To Caesar. That's why he's taking this trip across the Mediterranean to get to Rome. And I have three movements that I've sectioned this story off. It's Ignoring Warnings, Heart of the Storm, and God's Encouragement. About that story, the the perfect storm, and from what can be deduced by real life audio records and whatnot, It suggested, though, that that crew wasn't without warning. And I wouldn't say sufficient warning. Many fishermen will risk it, and in in fact, many did risk it in that same storm, and they've survived. Nevertheless, there were warnings. And one of the biggest red flags was the late time it was in the fishing season. They headed out, I believe, mid to late September. And the seas get cold and choppy in the Atlantic by then. Interestingly enough, in our passage, particularly around verse 9, we find that it's the same time of year for Paul and all those on that vessel. This first movement is, again, ignoring warnings. We pick it up in verse 1. It says, when it was decided that we were to sail for Italy. So, Paul's been in the Roman capital of Judea. The Roman capital, not the capital of the Jews at the time noted, but the Roman capital, Caesarea Martima. And since he's appealed to Caesar, plans were made. Luke apparently had been with them for some time. That's what the he is pronoun means. It's evident that Luke, the author, is present for this catastrophe. He's a traveling companion of Paul. He's a Gentile physician, and in fact... It's evident in the detail, point by point, place by place, that an eyewitness wrote this. And after Paul makes it to Rome this time around, history tells us, though Acts doesn't record it, that whenever he gets to Rome, he is eventually freed. Oh, sorry, am I? Okay. (laughs) He is eventually um, freed. Later in life, though, Paul is sentenced to Rome a second time. and at that second time he's in Rome, he, he writes his last letters, Second Timothy among them. He gives this touching anecdote about Luke in two, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 11. He writes, this person deserted me, those people left me. And then he says, only Luke is with me. So with all of the we section in Acts and this growing commendation about him in Second Timothy, we, we get this feeling that Luke is a faithful companion. He's going to go with Paul to Rome here this first time. They transferred Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Augustan, I'm referring to Augustus, the cohort of the empire of the Caesar, far out from Rome, but is named directly after the emperor, so it suggests that this is someone a significant cohort. Most cohorts would be about 600 men under 6 centurions. But because of the remoteness, it's likely that this centurion, whom usually commands hundreds or a hundred men, he could actually have greater responsibility, more men under him. And centurions were also paid handsomely. Some wonder with good reason and possibility that these other prisoners who are bound with Paul heading to Rome, that these are actually likely gladiators or men sentenced to uh, perform in the games uh, in Rome for entertainment while they die. They were embarking on a ship of Adramitium that was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. The ship's origin is Adramitium, way up there. Um, but it's down all the way here in Caesarea. <clears throat> it's near Troas. Paul has actually been to Troas on his missionary journeys. And we're told it sails along the coast of Asia, which in, back in Rome's day, Asia was just modern-day Turkey. It is probably a minor cargo vessel, which means it's not suitable for open-sea transportation. Roman centurions and soldiers could requisition whatever they need to accomplish their missions. So Julius is just looking for the quickest ship to get out of port and start heading the direction of Rome. So they leave the port of Caesarea Martima. It says, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. When Paul finally makes it to Rome this time, He's going to write at least two letters that we know of, the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon, who is an elder at the church in Colossae. In both of those letters, he will say that his fellow prisoner and worker, Aristarchus, greets his readers. In fact, Paul knew Aristarchus back in Ephesus when there was another riot being had. In Acts 19, he was already a traveling companion. So Paul has a company, and his company, I should say, it says the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius, the centurion, treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends to be cared for. Uh, Sidon is only a few miles away from uh, the city of Tyre. And on Paul's third missionary trip when he was returning heading towards Jerusalem we read we read there it says we sailed to Syria that's the name of the region we landed at Tyre only a few miles away from Sidon because the ship was to unload its cargo there we looked up the disciples and stayed there for 7 days through the spirit they told Paul not to go on to Jerusalem so this is the return trip on the third missionary journey when they were he was being told constantly don't go to Jerusalem but He went anyways because he felt called, (laughs) and he got into trouble, and that's why he's actually heading out to Rome to face Caesar. So some wonder if uh, he got to meet with those guys and say, well, here's how it's going. You were right. Verse 4, putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were against us. So during the fall in the Mediterranean, there were westerly winds. And so the eastern part of Cyprus is acting as a buffer from those winds. I found a, a picture of Cyprus after I had to find out what was the name of this district. I won't go into it, but it's actually claimed to be owned by Turkey and not by uh, the Cypriots. So there's an ongoing, I guess, scuffle about that. However, here is a picture of that coastline, and uh, there is a car, so you can kind of get a idea of the size of what you're looking at and uh, a ship would have a good wind block so if the wind's going that way you know they have that block so helps you see what's kind of happening verse five after we had sailed across the sea that is off Cilicia this is Saul's home region where the city of Tarsus is <clears throat> And in Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. Now, Myra is pretty much the opposite north of Alexandria, Egypt. Hence, there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship bound for Italy and put us on board. So Egypt provided Rome with more than a third of its grain per year, about a 100,000 tons. In fact, Rome itself provided free grain to its residents. Sounds familiar to other people who want to do things in our government. But to support peace in the capital city, meanwhile, it's estimated that children in Roman-controlled Egypt died from malnutrition. The centurion Julius, no doubt, utilized one of these ships hauling grain to stow his prisoners. Now he has a ship that's built for open seas and he can head out into the Mediterranean. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind was against us, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. Sailing past it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. wonder if you heard all that. Slowly, difficulty, wind was against us. We needed a buffer again. In fact, depending on the weather, You're sailing with the winds headed, excuse me, you're sailing against the winds headed towards Rome from this direction. It's estimated because of the wind patterns that from Alexandria to Rome took about six weeks to two months. But if you're coming from Rome and going to Alexandria, that only took about two weeks. So that's that's the wind working against you. But it's also in the fall, that's the point of verse 9, where... Uh, Paul says, since much time had been lost and sailing was now dangerous because even the fast had already gone by. Now, this fast was a quick way of saying Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's like if it's in wintertime and some American says happy holidays, you know what holiday they're referring to. So it is with the, the fast whenever it's used like this. And the fast was anywhere from September through October. Most scholars estimate that the Day of Atonement in A.D. 59, which is also when they estimate Paul going to Rome here, was October 5th. So it had already come and gone. They were well into fall. Stormy bad weather could start as early as mid-September. They were well into the dangerous season where over thousands of shipwrecks in the Mediterranean have been uncovered from antiquity to prove its deadliness. The point is is it's bad weather, it's off-season. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I can see that the voyage will be with danger and much heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, if you know your Bibles, this isn't like the upstart Joseph and his brothers back in Genesis being cocky and acting like he knows what he's talking about. In fact, Paul has already written his letters to the Corinthians. And in the second of those letters, He writes, then three times I was shipwrecked for a night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger at sea. He's already been shipwrecked three times. There's going to be a fourth time before this trip is done. He's been adrift at sea. So Paul, Roman citizen, world traveler, aristocratic drew as a Pharisee, With the history of sea travel, he sees the skies, he knows the season, but he also knows the greed of the sailors he's with. This would be a good paycheck. One more load back into Rome before the year is done. But he says, don't risk it. Danger. Loss. Loss of lives if you head out. Don't risk it. He wants to winter in fair havens. There is a fair havens in Crete today, but most agree that the fair havens Paul was at was actually further down the coast now, in ruins. Really wasn't a good place to winter. It was exposed to open sea, but they're already there. They shouldn't even be there. They shouldn't have been sailing in the first place. Verse 11, But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Since the harbor was not suitable for spending the winter, the majority was in favor of putting to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix where they could spend the winter. It was a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest. So the plan is actually just just sail along the coast. It's only 40 to 50 miles away. That's where they want to lodge, Phoenix. They had one of the best harbors on Crete, a good place to winter, return to traveling in the spring. It's only a couple of miles, maybe a day or two of sailing, they think. Never mind all the slowly, difficulty, wind was against us, needed a buffer. It's just a few more miles. Never mind the man who's been shipwrecked three times adrift at sea, he's sailed the Mediterranean and all of his missionary trips, telling us to stay put. You know, this is as good as done. We just get on the boat, two days, get off, then we'll be done. It's ignoring warnings. And we got to be careful with this because Paul, as I just mentioned, whenever we stopped in Tyre, he had ignored warnings not to go to Jerusalem. But the difference is that Paul was called to Jerusalem to suffer. Here, though, there is no divine necessity to get the cargo to Rome. Rome probably has enough grain. There's no timeline to get the prisoners to Rome. Rome would want their prisoners likely safely brought more than lost at sea so they can die out in the games. So this is just bad decision-making from ignoring warnings. Have you ever ignored warnings before? Bad weather, contrary winds, difficulties. Maybe it comes in the form of advice people you know and love constantly saying, hey, what are you doing here? Maybe it comes in the form of continued bad consequences that if you thought about it, you could fix. Why can't I pay the bills off every two weeks when you're subscribed to things you don't even need? Paying for things you don't have more as wants than needs? Why am I having all these health problems whenever you look at your dieting and exercise, lack thereof? Maybe there's relationships that are severed, burnt, and tempestuous at best, but oddly enough, you believe you're never the cause. There's never fault as far as you are concerned in your mind. And so you ignore warnings. You you continue to sail off into more choppy seas where nothing good can happen. And people who love, perhaps even people, as my dad would say, who's been around the block a few times, (laughs) who could tell you these habits in your lives, these sins in your lives, if if they don't go They continue to go not repented of, or maybe even if you confess and feel sorry for, but don't repent of, loss is coming. Damage is coming. Serious consequences are coming. But are you ignoring warnings? Paul has issued warnings. They're at the edge, perhaps even farther than they should have sailed, later in the year than they should have ever done it. But instead of listening to Paul, they'll ignore him. They're about to head into the heart of the storm. that's our next movement, picking it up in verse 13. When a moderate south wind began to blow, they thought they could achieve their purpose, so they weighed anchor and began to sail past Creek close to the shore. The wind, for once, is in their favor. You know, but, but even in the spiritual storms that I was alluding to, simply because the wind might be going your direction doesn't mean God's on your side. It might mean the cultural winds or the world's winds might be favoring you, and it might actually be favoring you all the way out into the heart of the storm. But soon, a violent wind, and the Greek behind this word violent wind is actually where we get the word typhoon from. So it's called the Northeaster. It rushed down from Crete. The geography was such in fair havens that you couldn't spot a storm in the making. Verse 15, since the ship was caught and could not be turned on into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven. So you know how storms are made, one front, one front going one direction, it collides with the front of the opposite direction, supposing those fronts are contrary temperatures. The violent wind, the typhoon, the northeaster is just too strong. And even though it's just a couple miles down the coast, that's so close yet so far becomes even farther and farther and farther. And the sailors have to give way to it. They're in the hands of the weather in their minds. They're no longer sailing. By running under the shelter of a small island called Cauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. Cauda is about 20 miles southwest of where they were likely struck. So it's blowing them off course quickly. It's actually Greece's southernmost island at the time. It's a little bit confusing, but this storm was so violent that they're scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. That is, if they wanted to man a lifeboat, should their bigger ship uh, break apart, in a, and we're told later in the chapter that this boat is holding well over 200 people, close to 300. But if it were to break apart, they can't even get the smaller boat under control. They're being tossed and turned so quickly and violently. Water is probably filling the smaller boat. After hoisting it up, verse 17, the lifeboat, they took measures to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run on the Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and so were driven. So they were afraid that they were going to be blown all the way to the northern coast of Africa, about 400 miles southwest. Some translations call this the Sirtis Sands, because Sirtis just means quicksands. And it's estimated that actually entire fleets have been destroyed there by just getting grounded in the shallow water and then submerged in new waves. And so they're doing whatever they can to stay on course and not end up there, the infamous Bermuda Triangle, apparently for ancient Mediterranean seafarers. Verse 18, We were being pounded by the storm so violently that on the next day they began to throw cargo overboard. Thank you, Dean, for filling us in on why they do that. (laughs) Verse 38 would tell us in the same chapter that they're holding on to the grain, because it's not until verse 38 till they throw the grain overboard. Even in the storm, the prospect of losing money is not favorable. Verse 19, And on the third day, with their own hands, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. Verse 20, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest raged, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Pagan sailors, like those with Luke and Paul and Aristarchus, they had beliefs that dying at sea would be the most undesirable because being lost at sea, bodies could not be retrieved. And so Greek tradition and religion would deny the unburied a place in another world so you would believe to be haunting the area of the place you sank forever, hovering over where you sank. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's all true, but for them it is. They're scared out of their minds. The storm is continuing to rage The sun, moon, or stars are never seen. They've thrown out half of their ship. They're drifting nowhere. They're afraid of drifting somewhere like the quicksands, only to ground and sink their ship and sink themselves as they try to get out of the sandbars. All hope was at last abandoned. Have you been there? How quickly did it go from it's only a couple of miles down the coast? There will winter for good. To now, out in the middle of the open sea, no let up from the storm, not a moment of quiet or peace to even dwell on what they all know in their minds and hearts were going to die, the heart of the storm. You know, movies seem to have these depictions of these brutal, chaotic activity and action, but somehow, some way, as if by paradox, simultaneously a moment of time slows down. It's almost as if nothing is happening and one realizes this is it. This is it. All hope is abandoned. This word abandoned is actually to take away. It's actually the same word we use for expiate when sins, the taking away of the guilt of sin. Only this time it's hope that is completely removed. And it says, it, it is said that people without hope die quickly thereafter. Some of you have heard this story before, but it's all I got. And I remember in late January of 2021, Christy was diagnosed with cancer. We had no clue what it would do, how threatening it was. Then we were told we were pregnant. Then we lost the baby. Cancer and a lost child back to back. Dark time. We had and have a hope. It's what Paul's going to offer here in a few minutes in our passage. But I can't even imagine those who would encounter the storms of True storms and storms of this life without hope. There are people who hopefully will not give in to ancient Greek folklore, folklore about being confined to haunt the seas where you drown. But I do know there are people out there who believe if I do die, no one will eventually miss me. If I do die, it will be over. Nothing ever will happen again. My life will have been pointless anyways. And suddenly for the sailors, the workers who were hoping to make their last killing of the year, bringing the grain to Rome, have a whole new set of questions. They have a whole new outlook. They have a whole new problem, and the grain likely doesn't matter anymore. Storms often have a way of doing that. There was a reason these men were willing to ignore the warnings and head out, but when confronted with the heart of the storm, oh, wish they would have listened. Sometimes the things that you and I want so much that we're willing to ignore the warnings to get, when we're confronted with the heart of the storm, a new desire arises, the desire to survive, to live. And those desires that we had, that we were so much willing to ignore the warnings, that we had to have those desires, those warnings aren't desirable anymore. They lose their value. All that matters is living until eventually the hope to live wears out. Since they have been without food for a long time, they're likely too seasick, they can't keep it down, so what's the point? But this also plays into their being weak and emotionally drained. Paul then stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and thereby avoided this damage and loss. Now, I don't think Paul's being snarky here. Told you so, suckers. I don't think he's being haughty. Rather, he's likely reminding them to establish some credibility. I kind of knew what I was talking about. Again, this is a guy, though he's not a sailor by vocation, he's an experienced seaman. And also, for any of you out there who may have put the last verses about the unrelenting storm together with this reality that Paul's managing to, to give a speech on such a ship, Some have pondered if Paul is either talking below ducks, decks, not ducks, (laughs) decks, clutching onto beams, or there could be lulls in the storm as well, where Paul is making this speech. And where they have abandoned all hope of being saved, Paul says, verse 22, I urge you now to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. See, this is why Paul gave you the I told you so statement. He said before, not as a pessimist, just as a realist, you know, if you head out into this storm, the ship, the cargo, our very lives, everything's going to be lost. But now he says, here we are, it's as I stated, but take courage with this reality, no one will die. Right? If you can believe me before... Well, Paul, everyone saw how we were already faring. No one's dumb. We knew it was late in the year. And so how could you even know now? Verse 23, For last night there stood by me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before the emperor. And indeed, God has granted safety to all those who are traveling with you. See, As long as Paul has been called to suffer for the sake of Christ's name, He's also been called to this reality, I still have use of you, which means he's going to survive this trip. Storm will not stop Paul from appearing before Caesar. Shipwreck is not going to stop Paul from appearing before Caesar. And before he even gets to Rome, a deadly and poisonous snake bite will not stop Paul from appearing before Caesar in Rome. But notice this. The ship is still raging over the seas. And as verse 26 says, but we will have to run aground on some island. Small little task there. Not an exciting one, nor an easy one, nor an exciting prospect. But God told Paul he will survive. And in fact, all those with him will survive. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. It's interesting, in Jonah, Jonah was the direct cause of their peril. The choppy, stormy seas. And like Christ, a sacrifice was necessary for the storm to subside, the waters to calm. So Jonah is tossed into the ocean. Ocean, often a picture of evil for the Jewish mind. But now Paul is not the cause of the storm. In fact, he had been, he had been advising not to go into the stormy night. Nevertheless, literally by the grace of God, All will be saved by God's ambassador aboard the ship. Paul, another type of Christ. And I'll just mention the question, how does Noah fit into all this? But I'll leave that comment floating for you to reason about yourselves because I think you want to get out of here today sometime. But God's encouragement is this in your storm, where maybe you've been stormed off course. Maybe you've ignored warnings. Maybe you're in the heart of the storm now, but know this, wherever you're at, Admit where you're the one to blame where blame is necessary. However far off course the storm has brought you. Where maybe you once knew what you should do, but now you have no clue where to even start picking up the broken pieces. God's encouragement is this. You're not too far gone. There's always forgiveness. There's always His Spirit to invite repentance and In the ark, sorry I had to make the Noah reference, but in the ark there is salvation with the greater Noah, the greater Paul. You and I will be saved no matter how far off course you and I are. You know, you have a map in your bulletins, and keep those. I'm not printing more next week, so put it in your Bible that I know you read every day. And if you don't, you're going to start reading your Bible every day. But as I think about that map... What is your destination? And have you maybe been stormed off course? Maybe, maybe you've ignored warnings. But let this message be a warning that the Holy Spirit gives to you that you don't ignore. Maybe you've ignored warnings so much that you're in the heart of the storm. You've unloaded cargo. Maybe lives have been lost. Maybe you're abandoning hope. I don't know, but here's what I do know. You're never too far gone. And with Christ and in Christ, repentance, redemption, forgiveness, salvation all awaits you. And you can heed this warning today. You can be pulled out from the storm today. And to be honest, maybe that still means you'll have to run a ship aground in the future. In other words, it won't be easy. It might be hard. But at least you'll still be alive. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for who you are, for your great love for us. We see the picture of grace that all the people, not only were they not Christian or believers, but as we all are, they were ill-deserving of your grace. But simply because you have a task for Paul to complete, you save everybody on the ship. Makes me wonder how many Romans became Christians at the end of that trip, we're not told. But Father, we thank you so much for your grace. Father, if any of us are stormed off course, if we're out in the seas of life and we're maybe tempted or want to do things that are contrary to your will and your way, remind us again that your laws are not put in place to spare us or to hinder us from joy, but to spare us from harm. You don't want us to find harm. And if we are... In the middle of a storm right now, I pray that we would heed your warning, that we would return to you. Thank you that you wait with arms open wide. Help us to do the hard work of not only saying yes to your extended hand, but also to repent, to truly repent of the sins that ensnare us and to truly seek your will, to truly make right those wrongs that we have done. Thank you for the family of Christ to help us in this endeavor. And thank you for the Holy Spirit that you leave with us to minister us, minister to us constantly. Father, we love you and we thank you and we ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.